1: I'm glad you could be a part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers, not because it's a trendy thing to do, not because it makes you fashionable or popular, but simply because sometimes it's the right thing to do. We live in a time of such mass deception and uh, misdirection that finding someone who actually questions the narrative and thinks for themselves, it's a rare thing, and I'm glad you're one of those people. you wouldn't be you wouldn't take a chance on listening to a program like this. If you were just somebody content to follow along and you know go with the crowd and basically uh, stick with the safety of the herd, and I want you to know, I appreciate that. I I really do. I I can appreciate it's uh, it's a scary place to be when you realize, oh my gosh, am I the only one who's seeing this? And of course, uh, the world likes to to pretend too. If if you're seeing something or you're noticing something that other people have been successfully bamboozled into not noticing. Well, then the problem is with you, and certainly not with the masses, who are much easier to manipulate than thinking, thoughtful individuals. So, again, welcome to the show. Our program is brought to you in part by the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, also by HSL Pure-Light.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. Marvelous sponsors, all of them. I have a link to them in the show notes at the Brian Hyde Show.com. I would encourage you when you check out the show notes. And, and I want to make this plea. This is, I know this is, it sounds like a shameless plug for go to my website, click on this, click on that. The reason I publish show notes every day that I do a program is not because I'm trying to show off my computer skills, it's, it's because I'm linking to articles or I'm linking you to guests who can take you much further in depth than I'm able to do in the brief segments that I'm doing each hour of this show. And, and you know, this is not a requirement, okay, so I'm not telling you you have to do this or you're dumb. I'm just saying if you're a person who's serious enough about digging deeper, going beyond the superficial, you know, the daily tattler or whatever, you know, the the mainstream media is talking about that they, they pretend is the most important thing, if you really want to get to the root of some of these issues... You've got to be willing to do some research. And the articles that I link always are well thought out. They're well researched. They're well sourced. Otherwise, I wouldn't share them with you. I just, I mean, you know, it's possible I may get something wrong, but I, but I really try not to put sen- <clears throat> sensationalized or otherwise halfway or inaccurate information in front of you. I feel like I have a duty to, to give you the very best information that I can find. And so that's that's what I provide, resources for wrong thinkers. But to, those show notes are a treasure trove of information if you make the time to actually sit down and and follow that information and read the articles and follow the the links that are within those articles to get a better understanding, not for me, but for yourself. This is probably redundant. Maybe this is what you do anyway. I don't take for granted that anybody believes a single word that I say. I think they just like my cheery disposition and, you know, my occasional sarcasm. I don't know. But I encourage you to take the time to dig a little deeper. It's worth it. It's, It's essential if you want to own your own worldview. So with that in mind, let's jump right in. Do you remember not too long ago, I mean, you know, over the last year and a half, there was a time when healthcare workers were celebrated almost universally as heroes. I mean, they do TikTok dances. We were told, you know, these are first responders. These are, you know, the front lines of the fight against COVID. Would it surprise you to learn that many of these uh, healthcare workers now are being forced to make a choice by their employers? You either take the COVID vaccine or be fired. Now, I know the, the, there are some libertarians who would say, well, now, Ryan, it's a private business, and, you know, you, nobody forced you to work there. So if that's the problem, you know, just go find another job. And I do agree with you on some level there. But here's the bigger question that I'm asking, okay, because I know that not everybody listening is a healthcare worker. It's them today, but what will you do when it's your turn to choose? And if you think, well, I'm never going to be put in that situation, I want you to think again. There was a terrific uh, article from the RonPaulLibertyReport.com. This is from Chris Rossini. You can always get another job, but you only get one life. Now, Chris Rossini says, Each of our individual lives are extremely personal to us. We experience the consequences of our own decisions. No one else experiences them for us. So when we choose, and we constantly are choosing every second of every day we subsequently experience the results of those choices and must deal with them. Now, Chris Rossini says oftentimes we're pleased with our choices, but since no human being is all-knowing, we quite often make choices that we end up regretting after the fact. It's impossible to have all the information ahead of time. It's impossible to know every implication and all the variables that are at play in each moment. But in this life of perpetual uncertainty, We must choose nevertheless and then experience the results of those choices. That's what it means to be a human. Now, in this environment, other humans who deal with the same uncertain world that we deal with come along and attempt to impose their choices on others. Naturally, these individuals gravitate towards government and attempt to use the force of government, which is meant to keep the peace, not to coerce the peace, to their advantage. So today, a politician actually has a vaccine goal of 70% by July 4th. Now, it appears this goal is not going to be reached, but the fact that such a goal even exists shows how warped the role of government has become. Chris Rossini says, how can one person even have a goal for hundreds of millions of other people? That's not how humanity works. We choose our own goals, and when it comes to medical treatments, that's one of the biggest choices we will ever make. Medical treatments are extremely personal. You can't get much more personal than your very own physical body. As such, medical treatments must always be voluntary. No one should ever be pressured or bribed or coerced into sticking a foreign substance into their own body. And most of all, medical treatments are absolutely none of the government's business. And yet today we see all of these tactics on full display. The pressure campaigns are relentless. The bribes are beyond ridiculous. Stick a foreign substance into your body and get a free burger or beer or be entered into a lottery. This is how Americans are viewed by their elected and unelected officials. Really? It's beyond insulting. And amongst the most sad of all are the workers who are losing their jobs or being forced to quit because they refuse to be part of the biggest medical experiment in mankind's history. No one deserves such treatment. Chris Rossini says, ironically, even healthcare workers themselves are a part of this group. A few months ago, they were hailed as heroes. Today, many are being kicked to the curb unless they roll up their sleeves. This is how we treat heroes now? It's wrong. In fact, the word wrong doesn't fully capture just how wrong it is. And so many people in many different professions are apparently coming to the conclusion that they can always get another job, but they only get this one life. So they ditch the job in favor of preserving their life. Chris Rossini says, look, there's a big lesson on display today. It's a lesson that libertarians have been shouting from the mountaintops for ages. Namely, one should never sacrifice personal liberty to the government during a real or even perceived crisis. Once that sacrifice is made, a price will have to be paid. That price is never worth it. Now, government will forever try to convince you, but it's different this time. It's not different. It's never different. Liberty is absolute. We have one life each. We make our choices in an uncertain world and will experience the consequences of those choices. The consequences cannot be passed off onto anyone else. And Chris Rossini says, sacrificing liberty is much too high of a price to pay. Doing so can end up ruining one's life completely. I will have a link to this in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. I thought it was a very succinct and thoughtful take on a subject that, that whether you believe it or not, all of us are likely to have to confront at some point. And please understand, I don't think ill of you. I don't think you're a sheep or you're stupid because you went ahead and got the COVID vaccine. Look, if it made sense to you, if that was something you arrived at after thinking about it and thinking, okay, what what are the risks? What are the benefits? And ultimately, you decided the benefit outweighs the risk to me. More power to you. This is about using the force of government to force people or, for that matter, the coercion of we'll fire you if you don't do what we want to do something that coincides with a politician's goal. I don't know if you can tell, but I don't really care what politicians want. (laughs) I try to make them as irrelevant in my life as possible, and frankly, I'm happier that way. But you only get that one life. You can always get another job. That's a good way to look at this.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: Thank you so much for being a part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. Doesn't mean you have to be an unpleasant person. Doesn't make you any kind of a radical or anything like that. This just means you are one of those people who is willing to question the narrative. Decide for yourself, is this right for me? Am I going to believe this or not? And this is going to be really important because uh, I don't know if you've noticed this. If, you, if you're if you a freedom-loving person, chances are the hair has been standing up on the back of your neck for quite some time. And this uh, this is especially true if you've been paying attention. I mean, since January 6th, if you've heard the language, if, if you've seen any of the press conferences, I really watch as little television as possible. I don't follow much of the mainstream media because there's so much blatant disinformation And I really don't care what the political class is saying. But it's pretty clear from what does get through what I do here, that uh, if you're a freedom loving person, the systems that seek to rule us are coming for you. I know that sounds dire. I know it sounds scary. I believe it is the reality. And it's not just the left wing Democrats that are going to be coming to get you. They're going to have a lot of help from their moderate Republican friends who think they will share in the spoils if they can just get these rabble rousers, these troublemakers, you know, underfoot. Bring them to heel. Well, in the words of uh, Mal Reynolds from Firefly, I aim to misbehave. I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to be saddled by these members of the political class who insist that I ex- accept their blessings and, you know, thank them for it i paid enough attention and I've asked enough questions and I've, and I've paid the price of studying things out for myself enough to know when they are destroying my private property rights, when they are destroying my economic hope, when they are destroying what remains of my freedoms. And yet they'll sit there with a straight face and expect, oh, well, you probably want to shake my hand for all that I've done for you. Yeah, no thanks. It's not that I hate them. I am indifferent to them which is actually a stronger rejection than hatred. Hatred at least inspires passion. This is like pfft, whatever you're offering, I'm not buying. I'm just not interested. Now, I love people who can give us historical perspective about uh, what's going on as well as what needs to be done. Angelo Codavia is one of those individuals and has a remarkable Piece in lewrockwell.com to rescue a nation. This was actually originally published on the American mind, but um, this his take is, and I'm just going to hit a couple of excerpts because this is a, this is a very lengthy essay. It'll take you time to read and digest what he has to say, but I'm telling you, I think it's worth it. His take is restoring America requires dedicated citizens to refound our republic. And I want you to hear where he's coming from because there's some terrific historical perspective to draw upon here. He says, people become nations, peoples become nations, by following those who lead them to worship the same gods or idols and to act habitually as they do. Now, the Greeks called these habits ethics. These change for good and ill as prominent persons change or develop new ways of life or foreign influences impose themselves. The general population tends to follow Plato and Aristotle led subsequent generations to note that peoples tend to take on their leader's character. Now, some see such changes as betrayal. If these uh, alienate a large enough proportion of the people, the body politic itself loses the capacity to act as a whole. Enough disarticulation and the body politic ceases to exist for practical purposes. Serious changes, regardless of their sources, Lead some to want a resetting the country on what they regard as its proper basis or outright resuscitation. Now, Machiavelli wrote that doing that amounts to refounding a nation, and that this is considerably more difficult than founding one in the first place. So, what does it take to refound a nation? Well, the question is lively for 21st century Americans because the changes that have taken place in the bipartisan ruling class that controls nearly all our institutions have explicitly denied and denigrated what had made America itself. Today's ruling class leads and even forces Americans to act, speak, and think, as if all they had thought good were bad and vice versa, almost as if a vengeful power had conquered the country. At least half the country yearns for some kind of rescue. By the way, just as an aside, can you see why I like Angela Cotavilla's, Angelo Cotevilla's take on things? He has a way with words, but he also has a really sharp perspective here. He says, though history does not lack examples of nations rescued and refounded, most rescues involve overthrowing the dominion of foreigners rather than of mutated ruling classes. But, as the book of Exodus shows, the removal of foreign influence is almost always much less than half the battle. Reference to foreign opposition, or oppression rather, is often a necessary, but not always but always rather an insufficient factor. For instance, Charles de Gaulle's success against the Germans wasn't enough to overcome resistance to his efforts to restore France's corrupt body politic. Without a foreign focus, however, refounding can only be a civil war of variable temperatures. Abraham Lincoln's failure to avoid the civil war is as clear an example as there is. Now he says Machiavelli's near equation of reform with refounding mostly abstracts from the fact that for people and regimes founded on and tailored for the people's characteristics, repeating something like the founding is not possible. Once these have changed, people are far less malleable than regimes. On the one hand, successive generations of Romans were able to reset Rome more or less on the basis of, on which Romulus had set it by killing his brother Remus, who had trespassed on what became the Herb's fundamental law, War Against Outsiders successive fathers of the fathers of the fatherland reaffirmed that law and when cleomenes judged that sparta's efforts had violated lycurgus's constitution he deftly reestablished it by killing the efforts and their followers the soviet regime's fundamental law was that the communist general secretary's murderous discipline of the party which was the the, the murderous discipline of the party, which suffused society with fearful uncertainty. So when Mikhail Gorbachev tried to rescue tyranny from the feudalism into which it had fallen under Brezhnev, he he might well have succeeded, had he been willing to kill as Lenin and Stalin had done. Doubtless, rescuing disrespected constitutions is always required and will always require undoing any number of enemies. But Angelo Codovia says there is little historical evidence that the peoples who had constituted themselves nations on the basis of freedom can convert that nationhood's lively memory into rebirth. Self-government ever reflects self and lost civic virtue is almost as unrecoverable as lost virginity. Now from here he goes into some very uh, deep details about uh, divisive leadership. He talks about how the political conflict in which we're engaged pits some Americans who revere the legacy and memory of the Republic founded in 1776 to 1789 against those who despise it and have corrupted the Republic's institutions into an oligarchy. The concentration of corruptions in the ruling class, he says, does not minimize the reality that a part of the U.S. population are that oligarchy's eager subjects, either uninterested in or opposed to any kind of restoration. We resent that our ruling class's corruption deprives us of self-government or we who resent that our ruling class's corruption deprives us of self-government are another part. Hence, governing ourselves again, resetting America on the basis on which it was founded is necessarily by, of, and for only we who want it. I'm sorry. That's kind of a harsh reality, isn't it? We're, we're pretty outnumbered right now. In short, he says America has changed so much from what it had been just a half century ago that any restoration implies some sort of mutual alienation, separation or secession, whether as a substitute for civil war or as a result of it. What kind of conflict might it take to rescue ourselves from what we regard as contemporary America's corruptions? I'm going to come back and we'll revisit a few of the high points. Again, I don't have time to share the entire essay. It's one that you're going to have to want to read and find time to read for yourself. But it is linked in the show notes. And again, these are show notes for June 24th, 2021. You'll find them at thebrianheidshow.com. We'll be back in just a moment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Oh, I'm, I'm
1: shoveling out the food for thought. Yeah, as fast as I can. Got some great stuff here, too, from Angelo Cotavia, writing for AmericanMind.org. How to rescue a nation, particularly a republic that is in the process of being transformed and disassociated with everything that actually made it a republic and made it great in the first place. Yeah, it's all part and parcel, you know, the 1619 Project, postmodern politics, uh, intersectionality and third wave and fourth wave feminism, as well as critical race theory. A lot of, lot of things at play right now. These are just a few of them that are, that are determined to separate us from our heritage and from, most importantly, the principles and practices that made this republic possible. And some people think, I don't know, maybe it can't be, be rescued. And by the way, I'm, I'm one of those people. I'm not sure that it can be, or at least uh, not without uh, a, a very serious humbling on the part of most of the nation and turning to God, whom the founding generation at least recognized as the author of liberty. But that's that's just my opinion. I want to get back to Angelo Codavia, who says, the process of rescue necessarily consists of Republican Americans' would-be leaders by that's that's a small R, Republican, would-be leaders convincing their followers to ignore, to disdain, to resist the directions from society's commanding heights in favor of what they believe is more consistent with what America had been and should be again. It's essentially a revolutionary or counter-revolutionary process that requires equal doses of negation and affirmation. Now, because... Nations consist of collective affirmation. Founding, refounding, and mere repair require leadership that embodies, personifies, and secures the good to which individuals are invited to adhere. Statesmanship, in other words, constructive politics, consists of attracting the many to feel and to lead them to act as one. This means leadership must consist of identifying with a cause common and attractive to the people. But he says to meld the assertion of collective authority on behalf of a prospect at odds with the dominant power of the day, to affirm a better future while leading collective rejection of the present, to say don't listen to them, listen to me and follow me, though it may cost you to do so, may be one of the most difficult of messages to formulate and deliver successfully. Because it inevitably foments strife. It must be part and parcel of reasonable plans to safeguard the people through that strife to the desired goal. By the way, as he mentions that, that, that message of don't listen to them, listen to me and follow me, even though it may cost you to do so. It makes me think of Ammon Bundy, among others, as, as the kind of person who has stepped up and, and assumed leadership, not for the sake of power. If you watch what Ammon's doing, he's he's not trying to aggregate power for, for furthering his own interests. I think this is a guy who's actually engaging in statesmanship. But it's a tough message. And I think that's best illustrated by the number of people who irrationally hate him. I mean, hate him and rail against him at the mention of his Bundy. Wow, they just go nuts. They hate it. And they don't even know why. Other than they've been conditioned to do so. I mean, can you blame people for not wanting to stand up and say, yeah, count me in. <laughs> they, they see the crowd gathering rocks and, you know, people, you know, looking for, for a place where they can start launching you know their projectiles at the unpopular. Yeah, who really wants to be one of the unpopular? And yet, if these principles and practices really are the key to establishing, maintaining, and protecting your freedom, then it has to be done. It can't be pleasant. It can't all be, you know, rose petals raining down on you and ticker tape parades and, you know, everybody waving the flag and cheering you for doing so. I think this is one of the biggest ironies that I've I've come to realize is that what uh, what everybody calls patriotism sometimes takes a very different form than what we perceive patriotism to be. For instance... You know, the seventh inning stretch. Oh, we're going to stand up and we're going to, you know, do the seventh inning stretch, pledge allegiance, sing the national anthem, whatever, you know. Okay, great. But it's only patriotic if everybody does it. Sometimes the most patriotic thing you can do is to do the exact opposite or not do what everybody else is doing Maybe a better way to say it. That's hard. That's, that's a very difficult place to be in. Angelo Cotavillo goes on to talk about singular leadership. And and this is something, I don't know if I agree with him on this all the way. I don't know that we need to be looking for a singular figure to step forward and lead us through these troubling times. I do think such individuals tend to emerge. And I think this has to do a lot with the historical cycles that you'll hear talked about in the fourth turning. There's a great champion. I think uh, Trump, at least for a period, was that great champion. By the way, FDR was a great champion. Lincoln was a great champion. So when I say this, I don't want you to think I'm I'll, oh there's just I'm starry-eyed and they're so cool. Sometimes they can be a real dirtbag or they can be, you know, very authoritarian and and harsh. But the bottom line is a great champion is one who can make the difficult decisions and see his society or his nation Sorry, I'm being sexist, but um, there have probably been female great champions as well. I can, I can only think of the ones here within recent memory, and they were all male, can see his society through those tough times by being willing to, to be the a-hole who's, you know, who's making unpopular choices. Something that was pointed out here in, in Angela Cotavillo's article was the American Revolution happened through the efforts of differently motivated people in scarce contact with each other. But it could not have succeeded, he says, and certainly not in the same way had it not been for George Washington. In the 1860s, countless Americans pushed and pulled the country around. Lincoln provided such coherence, focused definition as America needed to get through its trial. And his loss showed how important these had been. So he's saying a defining leader's presence is essential for the members of the enterprise to recognize themselves as part of something that is alive. Leadership provides a living intelligence and will in which they can place their confidence on safety and success. So to lead, someone has to prove he knows what he's doing, that he cares, and that he's going to make the whole thing work. At all times and in all places, persons personify enterprises. The greater the enterprise to be personified, the wider and more diverse the interests and passions to be focused on it, the more essential it is that whoever does try to do it, meld himself into it. Charge of big, big things naturally tempts would-be leaders to think of themselves in large terms, to seek commitment to themselves. There's no greater pitfall. Effective espousal of a cause means that the leader dissolves into the cause. So a serious attempt to rescue Americans from an alien regime at war with our way of life awaits the rise of a person to embody their sentiments, focus and lead them to act successfully on their, in their own interest. Now he talks about how Moses rejected his comfortable, uh, first rejected his comfortable uh, place in Egyptian life by protecting an Israelite. But when the call came from the burning bush, what was Moses' reaction? Remember? Not me. I'm slow of speech. But the voice from the fire told him that rescuing Israel was not about Moses. It was about what I am wanted done. He would tell Moses what to say and give help, whatever help was needed. In other words, Moses' insufficiencies mattered less than did the cause He talks about the same thing. When France's uh, entire ruling class dissolved, delivering that country to Hitler, Brigadier Charles de Gaulle, stranded in London, begged that class's better parts to take up France's cause. All refused. Now, he resisted instinctively the prospect of doing it himself, comparing it to trying to cross the ocean by swimming. But then when nobody showed up to shoulder the impossible burden, he put his personal insignificance aside and told his radio audience that some voice will be raised Against the collaborationist outrages, and tonight that voice will be mine. From here, Angelo Codovilla goes into what would it take to preserve America's institutions, to restore the republic. He talks about the defensive battles that would have to be fought, and goes into great detail. He talks about a return to federalism, which we are actually seeing on many terms, on on many many uh, in many cases, rather, in terms of states' rights. I don't know if this is just a pipe dream. He says geographically Republican American Republican America, if it were done, would rain from shore to shore from Canada to Mexico. Its birth rate, its educational systems products, its economic vigor, its social stability, its degree of happiness will reflect how fit today's Republicans, small R Republicans are for self government. And he says we cannot foresee and we shouldn't speculate how their successes and failures might affect woke America. But we can be sure, however, that radical decentralization at home can only reduce the matters with which the U.S. foreign policy deals and hence increase the likelihood that they be dealt with soberly. I really recommend this essay. Set aside some time though if you want to read it. It's in the show notes at the
0: Brian Hyde This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde
1: Show. All right, we are back. I apologize. I know I'm kind of all over the road here, but I'm really excited about that essay from Angelo Cotevilla. And, and I really hope that you will find the time to read it. Even though it's lengthy, it, uh, it is, he doesn't waste words. There's not a lot of fluff. There's not, you know, weasel words to keep you, you know, clicking so you can find out, you know, what comes next. I want to move on now to uh, talk a little bit about uh, partisan politics, something I despise. I spend very little time on partisan politics because it's is—it's just so ugly. It makes people a caricature of who they really are. But I have to give grudging props to Republican members of Congress who, at least for now, have managed to stop the For the People Act of 2021. I think it should be more accurately related For the People in Power Act of 2021 so they've they've prevented it from becoming enacted what's left of the the republic may be preserved at least for the moment but it's a pretty safe bet i don't know if you caught the president's remarks yesterday why you, we need you to give up your guns um, this is subtext he wants the guns given up and he reminds us well if you're going to go up against your government you're going to need f15s you're going to need nukes apparently he's never heard of vietnam or Afghanistan or Iraq or any number of other small rabble countries that have no F-16s or F-15s, have no nuclear weapons, and nonetheless have still successfully fought the mighty U.S. military to a standstill and convinced them that, you know what, you can't win this. We are more willing to die for our country than you are for, for whatever your leaders are telling you to. And so they don't win an occupation, you just choose to end it and go home. Which is what's happening right now in Afghanistan. And by the way, the fact that uh, the Taliban is taking over immediately as U.S. troops withdraw. That's not a failure of U.S. foreign policy in the sense that, well, you know, the bad things are happening because we're leaving. No, the bad things are happening because you went there in the first place. It was a mistake. So. You're going, to hear, you're going to hear cries of insurrection. This is, this is something that at least Democrats in Congress have been, been pushing very hard. This is an article, this is actually an editorial, rather, from Issues and Insights. The Republic preserve, but Democrats will try insurrection again. I thought this was a pretty good take. Issues and Insights say Republicans have saved this country's two-party political system, at least for now. The power-hungry Democrats won't give up easily, though. They'll redouble their efforts to set themselves up as an unchallengeable political force that rules rather than governs. By the way, i got to give props to my friend Jason. That was exactly the prediction he made the day after Trump was elected in 2016. He said, you watch. When the left gets their hands on power again, they will set things up and they will do everything in their power to make sure that nobody is ever able to challenge their control Again, my friends, it's happening right this moment, right in front of our faces. Back to the issues and insights editorial. With Senator Mitch McConnell and the rest of the Republicans in the 50-50 Senate voting against moving forward with the For the People Act of 2021, the Democrats' plan to put elections under federal rather than state and local authority was shelved on Tuesday. That was the proper ending for legislation that should never have been written. Now, of course, the Democrat media cabal swears that the defeat is a disaster for the country. The bitter end of democracy. They've screeched until breathless that without the bill, the U.S. would be a swamp of, quote, voter suppression. Now, the Democrats know full well none of that is true. They're also entirely aware that the For the People Act was a naked power grab by the party that continues not to drift, but to steer hard to the left. A fact they tried to cover up with their theatrics. The legislation which got through the Democratic House by 10 votes back in March was a brazen effort to install permanent Democratic control of the federal government, its insurrection by ballot. Beneath its feel-good title, the For the People Act is a dark ruse that creates favorable conditions for voter fraud. Now, maybe you already know this, but those provisions include mandates to allow automatic registration and same-day voting after registration. It limits states' ability to work with each other to determine which voters are registered in multiple states simultaneously. It prohibits election observers from cooperating with election officials to file formal challenges to suspicious voter registrations. It criminalizes protected political speech by making it an offense to discourage someone from voting. It bars states from making their own vote by mail laws. It allows citizens who lack any appropriate photo ID to gain access to the polls with sworn affidavits to their identity. In other words, it makes it easier to cheat. So when you hear people saying, well, I want people to identify themselves, I don't want people to be able to cheat easily, oh, you want to suppress votes. Yes, I want to suppress cheating and false votes. You have a problem with that? Anyhow, as Issues and Insights notes... The For the People Act federalizes elections, putting our voting system in the hands of deep state bureaucrats and political insiders. Rather than local officials being directly accountable to voters, Washington functionaries would be free to act as they please. Among the worst provisions of the bill is its requirement that states allow ballot harvesting, in which third parties collect ballots on behalf of groups of voters, such as those in nursing homes. Even the shallowest of thinkers understands just how ripe this practice is for fraud. Some of the harshest criticism of the bill comes not from Republicans, who would be hurt by it more than any other political group, as they are the only electoral threat to the Democrats, but libertarian thinkers. The Cato Institute's Walter Olson wrote in March that the legislation fairly bristles with provisions at odds with our nation's founding document. He continues, there are free speech violations about which ACLU officials have expressed alarm. There's separation of powers problems. There's plenty of federalism mangling. Ilya Shapiro and Nathan Harvey, also of the Cato Institute, are on record as saying the bill was the latest effort to further federalize and micromanage our governance. The enormous 571-page bill is a progressive wish list of new rules and regulations that would undermine the legitimacy and functionality of our entire electoral system. This is what they wrote before it was passed in the House. Shapiro and Harvey continue, the Constitution deliberately decentralizes power over elections as it does over most other areas of law, leaving states and localities to determine rules for when, where, and how to cast a vote. We have laws in place to stop racial discrimination and the like, but short of that, decentralization ensures that no single entity exerts too much influence over elections, end quote. And here the uh, Issues and Insights editorial staff says decentralizing elections is sensible because as Shapiro and Harvey point out, it's harder to fix 50 state elections than a single national election. Though it must be mentioned that a presidential election can be rigged simply by hacking a handful of local elections in swing states. Richard Epstein, law professor and Hoover Institution senior fellow, believes the practices the act would put in place during elections are Invitations for fraud. At the same time, he says the use of an affidavit as opposed to an ID card is an open invitation for fraud. No one today could use a sworn affidavit in place of a picture ID to gain access to an airplane, school, hospital, or bar precisely because the picture offers a cheap and effective defense against various forms of impersonation. So the Democrats' appetite for raw political power displayed not only in the For the People Act but as well as in their attempts to curb speech they don't agree with, a red-hot desire to pack the Supreme Court, their tacit approval of cancel culture, an eagerness to ram through vote-buying legislation, and their campaign to pick up more Democratic voters by adding Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. to the Union. So they will try again in some other way to capture incontestable control of the federal monster. Gorge it with other people's money and turn it loose on America. It's just who they are now again, I know they're they're taking aim particularly at Democrats, but I would encourage you, do not be blinded by the idea that oh, it's only the Democrats alone. They have plenty of Republican cohorts, Mitt Romney, I'm looking in your direction, who are very eager to to prove that oh, I can play ball too. You can count on me to do the right thing. I don't know what to tell you at this point other than, you know, whether you want the fight or not, it's coming. We'd be foolish to continue to pretend that, all oh, this isn't really going to amount to anything. No, it already is. It's amounting to something. And whether you like it or not, we all have a choice to make. I made mine a long time ago. There are some things in life that to me are more valuable than life itself. Freedom is one of those things. Now, I'm not saying I'm eager to give my life for freedom. But I am saying I'm willing to. Eager or otherwise, it would be the right thing to do because of what I know about how precious freedom is and what it takes not only to qualify for it, but what it takes to maintain it. Have you asked yourself these kind of questions? What would it take to get you to sit and think
0: about that for a little bit. This is The Brian Hyde Show.